Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, we are back. Hello. And did you miss us? <laughs> we missed you. <laughs> we have, of course, been on our annual hiatus over the holidays, and today marks our debut episode of Season 6 of Dressed. It also, I don't know if you noticed, Dress listeners, marks a little switch up in the opening intro, which many of you have heard us say, I mean, hundreds of times over the last five years, April we have known this day was coming very soon. The day when we would have to update our introduction from mentioning the 7 billion people in the world to 8 billion people because, friends, this is the state of the world now. <laughs> yes. A few months ago, I think it was maybe like right before Thanksgiving, Cass, you actually texted me and you were like, well, it's time. <laughs> and I laughed out loud because I knew immediately what you were talking about because like three other people had already messaged me that day being like, well, you're going to have to update your introduction to the show now. So <laughs> here we are starting season six anew. And I, I apologize if my voice is a little froggy today. I actually lost my voice yesterday. And, and, and this is, I'm in recovery mode <laughs> currently. So bear with us. This is the season, right? Uh, <laughs> listeners, it goes without saying that the population increase of 1 billion people over the last dozen or so years has massive implications for the health of our planet. And of course, how we plan to clothe the estimated two more billion humans expected to arrive by 2050. That is insane. And this is certainly something that we will explore during the season of dress, but not today, because today we are actually going to take the opportunity to honor one of fashion's greatest. Yes. In late December 2022, Dame Vivian Westwood sadly left us at the age of 86, joining more than a few other fashion legends that departed us in 2022. Among others, editor Andre Leon Talley and designers Issey Miyake, Terry Mugler, and Hanai Mori, on whom we have already done an episode in the past. I mean, Cass, there is so much to say about the impact that all of these designers made within the industry. But as we will learn this week, Westwood, arguably, may have been the most dynamic of them all. And this week, we are so pleased to have Alexander Fury join us to discuss Westwood's more than 50-plus year career in fashion. You know, from Westwood's early years as a defining voice in the UK's punk scene, of course, that's in the 1970s, to her now legendary high fashion antics that inspired generations of designers to come. And our two-part episode this week is our little love letter to a woman who was also an extremely accomplished fashion historian in her own right. As is also our guest today, Alexander Fury. Alex is a fashion journalist, critic, and collector who owns many of not only Vivian's most important pieces, but also John Galliano's as well. 
He is the author of three books, Dior Catwalk, which is a detailed examination of the history of the House of Dior, collection by collection. Another book, Catwalk, details the career of fashion photographer Chris Moore, and also Vivian Westwood Catwalk, which we will discuss today. And he has also contributed countless essays to fashion exhibition catalogs produced all over the world. And we are so pleased that he has agreed to join us to share his passion for Westwood's work all this week. And it's always such a pleasure to welcome our listeners as guests. Alexander, we are so delighted to have you. Welcome to the show. Alexander, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, well, we're fans of your work as well. And um, I, I especially wanted to thank you for joining us on what is rather short notice because you have been extremely kind to kind of just jump into creating this episode with us rather quickly. We very much wanted to open our new season celebrating one of fashion's most brilliant and fascinating minds, Vivian Westwood, who, um, as many of our listeners may know, passed away while we were on hiatus from the show. So I'm pretty certain that you will agree with me when I say that there are only a handful of other designers whose work have really been more impactful in defining the trajectory of fashion's future. And one of the things that's so fascinating about her work is all the while she was really doing this so much of the time by also investigating fashion's past. And we're definitely going to get into all of this in a little bit. But before we do, I'm hoping that we can tease you apart before we tease Vivian apart. (laughs) You are a fashion journalist, a critic, and a collector. And I love this. On your Instagram bio, you also describe yourself as an obsessive. So um, (laughs) would you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became fashion obsessive and some of the illustrious publications that you have written for? It's actually interesting we're talking about Vivian Westwood. He's probably one of the reasons that I'm a fashion obsessive and one of the reasons I became interested not just in in fashion, but in fashion history. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very lucky that I was kind of growing up in the 90s and looking at the work of, uh, you know, designers like Christian Lacroix and Azadine Alaya, Alexander McQueen, John Galliano, but I would say maybe above all or before all Vivian Westwood. And the amazing thing about all of those designers is how much they referenced fashion history in their work. And it was sort of my first, you know, university of fashion. It it was the thing that when Vivian was talking about the work of Charles Frederick Worth or Dior and Jacques Fath, and when John Galliano was talking about Madeleine Viennet, um, those kind of sent me as a kind of curious kid down a rabbit hole of, of, looking at the work of those kind of past masters. And it, it's something that I've really sort of never recovered from, in a sense, is what I still do today. We lovingly call it the sickness. Yes. <laughs> but it's the best possible kind. Oh, and, and I think, you know, I, I, I call myself a fashion obsessive. Other people have called me fashion obsessives and said that's why, you know, it, it's the reason they've asked me to do certain projects and things like that. Um but, it, you know, also it's interesting talking about Westwood because Westwood grew up in the countryside just outside of Manchester. And so did I, not in the same place, but, you know, sort of equidistant from Manchester further to the north. And yeah, I don't really know where my obsession with fashion came from. I was interested in clothes. And then I think if you're interested in clothes and in what people wear, it's quite natural for it then to become an interest in, in fashion. And I've, I, you know, I think I've just always been fascinated with the history of fashion, the way people used to dress, why they used to dress that way, 
how that influences how we dress today. And that whole trajectory is something that I've been exploring through my career. And as you said, I've, I've written for, you know, lots of different people. I've, um, I've written a number of different books that tend to focus on, you know, the history of fashion. I've written for different publications, different international editions of Vogue. I was the first chief fashion correspondent of the New York Times tea magazine. I was the fashion editor of The Independent. I now write for the Financial Times and for uh, the magazine Another in London. And I've just finished writing this book on Vivian, um, which came out, if I can remember correctly, just as the pandemic hit or just after the pandemic hit, and which was obviously kind of a, an unusual time to be writing or publishing anything. Yes, I remember seeing it once I returned to FIT that we had gotten mm. it in in that in that time period. So um, you mentioned that you've authored several books, three to date, if I am correct. And of course, we're going to be speaking about today your your recently released incredibly definitive and sort of like a catalog resume on our subject today, Vivian Westwood. Mm -hmm. The book is entitled Vivian Westwood Catwalk. When and how did you first come to admire Vivian's work? You said that it definitely inspired your interest in fashion history. But what about Vivian's work specifically? And I'm also hoping that you would tell us about this particular project, the book, because as a fashion book, its concept and its format it's it's rather special. It's very unique. Yes. So I first became aware of Vivian's work as a child. Um, I think maybe growing up in the UK, she had a different kind of prominence than perhaps she had in the US or in other countries. Um, you know, here she was on on kind of chat shows and television and mm -hmm. radio. And, you know, by the early 90s, she was a, a kind of a well-known public figure I think earlier than that, she was a controversial figure and there was still kind of, you know, controversy. There's still, right up to her death, uh, Vivian was was very contrary and still had kind of controversy around her. But at that point, I think she'd become kind of known and sort of loved by the kind of general populace. And I, I was aware of Vivian's clothes, but I, one of the kind of formative um, influences, not just in terms of my knowledge of Vivian, but actually in my career and my love of fashion was Vivian did a three-part documentary that was uh, broadcast in 1996 called Painted Ladies um, for Channel 4 in the UK. Um, it's on YouTube, all three parts. I recommend you watch it because it is one of the most kind of extraordinary fashion documentaries that I've ever seen. Uh, one of the best, certainly. And it's Vivian kind of unpacking her philosophy of dress and her belief in the importance of history. She starts with one of her mantras that she borrowed from Bertrand Russell, which is that orthodoxy is the grave of intelligence. I love that. And she talks about the development of her collection. She talks about how she developed the 1990 portrait collection, the idea that it was about a woman looking like she stepped out of a painting. And I found it so incredibly inspiring. And when I watch it now, I find it so incredibly inspiring. And I recorded it on VHS when I was a kid, and I used to watch it every day, to the point that when I was writing Vivian Westwood Catwalk, the publishers were asking me where quotes were from. And I said, these are from Painted Ladies because I know them verbatim. I don't need to check it again, but here's the link. Um, <laughs> and to go to, to Vivian Westwood Catwalk, basically it is, it, it's a record of every single Catwalk collection that, that Vivian created. Obviously the, the kind of interesting slash irritating thing about that is that, that, 
Vivian's only started to show her clothes on the catwalk or runway, and therefore as part of the fashion system in 1981. Um, so it doesn't include the kind of really groundbreaking work she did in the 1970s. But of course, her work after that was groundbreaking as well. Um, but it's a very specific view on Vivian's work, which is when she became part of the mainstream fashion establishment. And I think what a lot of people actually forget is groundbreaking and incredibly influential, although Vivian's work was in the 70s, both during its time and afterwards, it was largely ignored by the mainstream fashion media because, you know, the clothes she was creating at that point were seen as subcultural. They were seen as kind of not even anti-fashion because anti-fashion didn't exist until after Vivian Westwood. There wasn't a kind of style underground where you would situate later people like Lee Alexander McQueen and John Galliano uh, in New York, people like Stephen Sprouse or, or Andre Walker. You know, that just didn't exist until Vivian and Punk kind of sparked it and created this kind of um, splintering effect in fashion. So it really charts from Pirate, which was the name given to Vivian's uh, 1981 collection. And what she herself says was her first true fashion collection. It was her first, the, the first time she considered herself a fashion designer was with that collection, right through to her last collection before uh, she handed the, the reins over to her husband, Andres Krontala, who is the creative director of the label now, and then right through to 2021. Mm -hmm. Right up until time of the publication of the book. So exactly. it was literally fresh off the runway. <laughs> what I have to say that spending time with your book was this rather sublime and immersive experience into the world of Vivian Westwood. You know, looking at the collection sequentially is this incredibly beautiful illustration of how she built her work as a language over time and how she would kind of return to and tweak past concepts, almost kind of like musical phrasing throughout her work. And when I closed the book, I was more in love with her than I already had been as someone who has worn her clothes for years. And the book really underscores her rightful place in this pantheon of fashion's great innovators. You know, she was very much an iconoclast who time and time again, as you kind of said, cracked fashion wide open. She was pushing it into these uncharted territories, which another thing that is interesting that a lot of times other designers are credited for, but in many cases, it was Vivian had already beat them to the punch. So um, let's talk about Vivian the person. Perhaps we should start with her rather idyllic childhood. And I'm hoping that you might speak about her early years leading up to and including her becoming a school teacher. Absolutely. Um, so Vivian was actually born in 1941. Uh, she was a, a wartime baby and she was raised, as I said, in the countryside in the north of England outside of Manchester. And as I'm sure many dress listeners will know, that's kind of cotton country in the UK. It's really the heart of the UK's textile industry. Her parents weren't in fashion, but they were connected to that. Her mother worked in one of the local cotton mills and her father uh, came from a family of shoemakers. And Vivian, when she was very young, learned how to make her own clothes. Um, she told me once that she'd learned how to make a pencil skirt. She could make a pencil skirt out of a yard of fabric. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it fitted incredibly tightly, just put a couple of darts in and a little slit up the back. And it was, you know, so she was making her own clothes as a teenager, a lot of the time because she couldn't find what she wanted. 
And also that was a very natural thing. You know, her mother was making clothes for them as well. It, it was just something that, that people did at that period in time. But in reaction to the kind of employment situation in the sort of post-war North, um, and also, to be honest, the kind of death of that textile industry in the UK, there was an employment shortage and her parents moved to Harrow in North London in 1957, where her parents managed a post office. At that point, Vivian actually left school and enrolled in a jewellery making course at Harrow Art School, but she left after a term because she didn't feel she could make a living in the arts. She then um, took a secretarial course and worked as a typist and then started to teach at a primary school in a North London suburb. Later on, she uh, went to a teacher training college and she taught in primary schools for about five years during the 1960s. And I find that really interesting because I always think there's a kind of um, didactic quality to Westwood's work. I've, I've written about it a few times, this idea that, that she really wants to impart knowledge uh -huh. through her clothes. You know, the, it, her clothes are kind of manifestos in themselves. It's the whole idea that you're, you can look at them and you can read the clothes in the same way that you could, could read a book. And, you know, Vivian was a, a massive reader. You know, she loved literature. From the time she was a, a teenager, she told me that, you know, when she was a teenager, she was reading Chaucer, Dickens and Keats. And she then returned to that later in life, uh, you know, and made a, a great study of, of kind of different literature from different cultures and was especially in love with sort of 19th century French literature. But a, another kind of amazing story that comes from that period when she was a primary school teacher is at one point her class needed to make a fish mobile, like a hanging mobile with, with model fish on it. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, Vivian marched this kind of group of sort of kindergarten age children down to the local fishmongers to look at real dead fish. And for me, that's really connected with how Vivian herself approached fashion and her work from um, not at, well from pirate onwards, but actually back into her work in the 70s for right at the very start from um, Let It Rock, which was the first incarnation of the, the shop she had uh, with the kind of music impresario Malcolm McLaren. Vivian studied and copied clothes. Um, you know, then she was copying teddy boy suits from the 1950s. In the early 1980s, she went to the Victorian Albert Museum and was copying original 17th century breeches for the, for the pirate collection I mentioned earlier. So there's always this idea of studying, copying. You know, she talks about the importance of copying and how it's how kind of great masters learnt their technique in art of the past. So she was really obsessed with this very close study and replication of, of kind of historical form. She was completely fascinated by history. So I think it's very interesting that her educational background is a, a huge influence on both what she produced and how she produced it when she became a fashion designer. Yeah. It, it, and as you said, you can read it in the clothes. You really, yes. really can, especially if, if you are a fashion historian like us, you're like, oh, I know that little shape. I know that little tuck. I know that little turn. But the amazing thing is that she, you know, a lot of the time it, it's colliding these different ideas together. So, for instance, in the 1980s, she created a sequence of collections called the Pagan Collections. And they were based on kind of combining classic English tailoring with elements taken from Greek mythology. You know, and she produced a corset with a drape across the front of it, which is this really, you know, and she also produced tailored suits with drapes across. And it's really this kind of combination of two 
completely opposite elements. These highly constructed um, modern Western garments that have these echoes of, of, you know, the 18th century or of haute couture or of English tailoring. And then with the freedom of and the kind of erotic frisson of ancient Greek drapery. And there's other elements that she created a skirt called the Centorella skirt, uh, which was based on the mythical centaur. And it had it's the first time she actually used a bustle effect um, in one of her works. And she told me that inside the skirt to hold the bustle out and to hold kind of pleats at the back in columns, there were little balls of, of wool. And those were actually taken from dresses that she studied from the directoire period of the early 19th century. But obviously, at that period, they were in the high-waisted dresses to hold out the back of those. But Vivian moved them to the back of a short skirt. You know, another kind of uh, very famous example is her mini crinny from 1985, which is the combination of 1960s mini skirts and 1860s crinolines. Mm-hmm. Another one that I love is actually her use of the codpiece, which was, you know, very simply kind of uprooted and um, it, it's kind of meaning challenged because she had women wear codpieces, which, you know, was absolutely brilliant. And she even moved the codpiece and hung it on the front of a corset. So is it still a cod piece? It's it's really interesting that she has this kind of again. It's this idea of fighting against orthodoxy, fighting against received notions of how fashion should be, how certain items should be used, where they should be used. It was about kind of breaking rules all the time with her work. Yeah, I, I would say she had a deep and abiding love of subversion. <laughs> well, she actually said at one point that to borrow kind of an English phrase. She, when she was a teacher, she was a bad teacher because she liked the kids who everyone else thought were little asses. <laughs> she liked, she liked the bad kids. She liked the kids that that all the other teachers hated, and I think she obviously saw a lot of herself in them. I think that this, you know, sort of anti-establishment ethos and and maybe even implied violence of the punk movement. The figure of a kindergarten teacher, which she was at the time, is wildly incongruous. So how did Vivian become involved in the London music scene in the early 1960s? She met her husband in 1961. They married in 1962, and her first son was born in 1963. So she was, at that point, kind of having quite a conventional life. But in 1965, her brother, who was at art school, introduced her to a friend of his, who was a student called Malcolm Edwards, but he would later revert to the name of his birth father, which was McLaren. Vivian divorced her husband in the first year, and then she began a relationship with Malcolm McLaren. And basically what happened with them is that there was this kind of creative partnership. They bounced ideas off one another. Um, I think Malcolm encouraged Vivian. There was, you know, and and certainly a lot of it was, although Malcolm was interested in music, there was a focus on dress. He always Uh said that he took Vivian and and redressed her because she was kind of dressed very conventionally and that he took her and kind of, in a sense, refashioned her through her clothes into someone who was kind of cooler and more edgy. And they'd become involved in, uh, you know, they were both very interested in, in music and in the kind of London club scene at that point. And quite kind of naturally for them, it led to them opening um, a shop together. Mm-hmm. And that was the first incarnation of the shop that still stands at 430 Kings Road in West London. It had actually first been home to a very famous boutique called Mr. Freedom, 
So it was Mr. Freedom between 1969 and 1970, which is, you know, a, a boutique that kind of dressed the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So it was very much a kind of music fashion crossover at that particular kind of geographic location in London. The King's Road was, you know, to, to borrow the parlance of the, six, of the 60s, it was swinging at that point. Okay. And in 1971, Westwood and McLaren took over actually the back of 430 King's Road, which was a, a retro boutique called Paradise Garage. And they opened a shop called Let It Rock. And the whole idea of Let It Rock was a kind of, we already a, a very kind of strange and slightly anti-fashion statement because it was about 50s nostalgia in the 1970s. And of course, that late 1960s, early 70s was you know, the first kind of wave of nostalgia in fashion. It's when you had people kind of consciously referencing the 1930s. Uh, you know, 1971 is when Yves Saint Laurent did, the, did his um, 1940s collection and they were referencing the 1950s. And it was, as I said earlier, the, these kind of teddy boy styles, which was an, an English kind of subcultural style, actually itself aping Edwardian dress. So this is a very interesting thing of 70s aping the 50s, aping the 1910s. But, it, you know, that was tied in with a kind of um, a, a music movement as well. That, and this idea of kind of this interest in retro, this interest in 1950s records. The proprietor of, of Paradise Garage just one day didn't turn up, basically, just kind of abandoned the boutique. And Westwood and McLaren ended up taking over the whole premises and, you know, making the whole thing into, into Let It Rock. And that became kind of their base. Um, it went through multiple changes of name during the, the 1970s. And it became known as this kind of mecca for a movement that later on became known as punk. And you kind of see it, it kind of started with Let It Rock because there is a kind of, there's a sleaziness to some of the clothes, uh, you know, there are things like kind of 50s pin-up postcards and things like plastic ties that you could slot a pin-up playing card into. You know, there are bullet bras, there are mohairs, which obviously becomes something very famous um, under later incarnations. So you can see this kind of thread of subversion happening. The next incarnation of the shop was called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. And that was in 1973. And in 1974, it was renamed as Sex. And that was a proposal of what Malcolm McLaren, who was very clever with words and, and kind of aphorisms, he dubbed it rubberware for the office. And it was this <laughs> idea of selling kind of fetish-inspired clothing for everyday life. And it included both designs actually executed by Westwood and also ready-made purchases that sometimes they would adapt. So for instance, there were kind of rubber Macintoshes and they added straps that you would attach to your legs. But, you know, they had kind of high-heeled fetish shoes, lots and lots of rubber and latex. And the clientele there was a very interesting mix because it was a mix of um, actual kind of fetishists who were going there to buy rubber, you know, to buy kind of rubber gimp masks and things to, to kind of get off on. Right. And also kids who were drawn to it because it was provocative, anti-authoritarian, there were people writing about it in mainstream press. Actually, their first mention in the mainstream press was a journalist saying that you should avert your eyes when you walked past 430 Kings Road because you <laughs> would be shocked by it. And it was actually uh, during the time that the, the shop was sex that they were fined for public indecency for a very famous T-shirt called the Naked Cowboys T-shirt, um, which depicted two kind of Tom of Finland-esque cowboys in conversation on a T-shirt 
And there was a slightly farcical trial where the judge measured the distance between the two cowboys' penises to determine <laughs> if it was obscene or not. Um, and, and what exactly is that um, that number of obscenity, I wonder? Apparently there was something to do with the fact that one of the cowboys was touching the other cowboy's necktie. That had something <laughs> to do with whether it was obscene or not. Um you know, but that became, it's, you know, a very well-known, and obviously that that was kind of the start of these sort of provocative t-shirts that then became a real mainstay of, of the shop's next incarnation, which was Seditionaries. And another thing I should actually say, which I've not really made clear, is every time the name changed, the whole kind of ideology of the shop, of the clothing, its decor, even the way Vivian and Malcolm McLaren themselves looked, all of that changed as well. So it was a little bit like a fashion collection, but rather than it happening season after season, it happened every couple of years. And they refitted the entire store as well to go in line with, with whatever that kind of particular obsession of the moment was. So Seditionaries was the uh, incarnation that the shop changed to in 1976. And that is probably the one that has become best known and associated with the punk movement and Westwood said the name Seditionaries itself was about the idea of needing to seduce people into revolution. And it it was actually during sex that Malcolm McLaren began to manage a band that became known as the Sex Pistols. And the management of the Sex Pistols was very interesting and kind of unique because of its very close ties between the fashion branding of the shop and the kind of image of the band what the band actually didn't know was that they'd signed contracts saying that, um, you know, a portion of their earnings would go to kind of the shop to fund the clothes they would be wearing. Oh, interesting. They thought Vivian and Malcolm were just giving them clothes to be able to kind of wear and tear and do whatever they wanted. What they didn't realize was it was actually built into their contract, which is obviously incredibly modern. And you'd had it slightly earlier with people like um, David Bowie, and also for me that, you know, a, a real precursor is the relationship between Roxy Music and the fashion designer Anthony Price, who created all of their clothes for them and, and very much helped to fashion their image. But I think a, a big difference with the, the Sex Pistols and Vivian and Malcolm was the kind of the closeness between it, the fact that kind of Sex Pistols lyrics were appearing on Seditionary's clothes it was very much this, and there was a slight kind of chicken and egg thing. You didn't know which came first. Um, you know, did Seditionaries come first? Did Punk come first? Would the Sex Pistols have happened separately? You know, it's it's all kind of happening at, at the same time. And it's an incredibly interesting, influential, although relatively short-lived movement. You know, Seditionaries opened in December 1976, and it closed in um, September 1980. It had already changed to World's End. And there's all these stories that apparently punks were coming down when they'd boarded up seditionaries and were transforming it into, into World's End. There were all these punks that they could hear outside being like, well, I'm sure the shot was around here somewhere. Like, you know, <laughs> they'd come to it because it was, you know, it was the mecca for the movement. It's, it's where people wanted to come and kind of pay homage and buy a pair of bondage trousers. Yeah. What was the cultural touchstone of that intersection between art and fashion? at that particular time. Absolutely. I mean, I think also it's that interesting thing 
punk was already kind of bubbling up and was already happening. There's an interesting quote from Patti Smith, I think, who kind of was talking about the fact that punk in London was much more style-led because it was led by Vivian and Malcolm. You know, she said, our hair looks like this because we don't brush our hair. Whereas in London, it's people gelling their hair, styling their hair. Uh, you know, it's ve- it, it became very much a kind of sartorial statement. And there's also another thing that people don't really talk about is the fact that, you know, the clothes that Vivian and Malcolm were making were not, they weren't cheap clothes, you know. It would be a week's wages to buy a, a pair of trousers from Seditionaries. And and actually the clothes were made with very good, from the very start, Vivian always used really good quality fabrics. She was using, uh, you know, English wools and Scottish tartans right from the start of her career. And that drove the price up. And another thing that's very interesting, actually, subsequently, is there are video interviews with Vivian from the 1970s in the shop at Seditionaries. And she's talking about the clothes and talking about the kind of references to Greek peasant costume and things like that. So there, there is this sense of um, a relationship to history and her interest in a deeper culture. You know, there's obviously this idea of thumbing your nose at the establishment, but for Vivian, actually as a designer, um, she was already experimenting with, with kind of historical forms and things like that. Well, and that's kind of this precise moment when your book picks up, because as a visual compendium, it begins in 1981, and Vivian was actually 40 years old at this time in 1981. I'm wondering uh, if you would talk about what was significant about 1981, kind of how she was becoming a little bit more independent of Malcolm at that time, and the direction that her career started to take. Absolutely. So as I've I've kind of indicated, as the kind of 1970s developed, Vivian became, I would say she became more and more of a fashion designer. She started off by copying teddy boy suits. And then during her time at Seditionaries, you know, she was designing the bondage suits alongside Malcolm McLaren. There's a very interesting exercise where Vivian deconstructed the T-shirt, made it even simpler than the simple garment already is. So there's really this idea that she's kind of flexing her muscle and becoming interested in the idea of designing garments, of of creating her own work. The shop, um, Seditionaries, closed in around 1980 and Vivian and Malcolm McLaren, still together, decided to kind of reconfigure it and they renamed it World's End. If you go to 430 Kings Road, that is the design that it still has. Vivian fell in love with it and never changed it. And the whole idea is that it's a little bit kind of oldie worldy, like a 17th century shop meets a storm tossed galleon. So when you go in, the floor is sloping, um, <laughs> it's reclaimed wood. There's a 13 hour clock that's spinning backwards outside, this kind of little lintel leaning over. It look, it, you know, it looks like it's been there for hundreds of years, but they only built it uh, in, in 1980. And what that connected with was kind of Vivian's interest, Vivian really exploring her interest in historical dress. From Malcolm's point of view, because Malcolm was always more interested in music than in fashion, the idea of piracy is music piracy. So it's this idea of of kind of stealing records, stealing beats, potentially even stealing music from different cultures and mixing it all together. And for Vivian, it, it is this idea of plundering the past, and also slightly drawing from different uh, different cultures. So at that point, Vivian started to study historical dress very earnestly. 
And her. She'd seen a picture of a pirate wearing breeches from the 17th She couldn't make her breeches look like that until she went and studied them and realised they were cut completely differently to normal trousers, uh, to, to modern trousers. And so she, you know, if you look at that collection, you can see that there are all these references to kind of, you know, 18th century men's undershirts, to those kind of breeches, to those soft buckled shoes. And then there are also very modern touches. One of my favourite things is the fact there are scarves with really thick tassels. And apparently to get the tassels right, Vivian pleated them over tampons. So that's how she got <laughs> that kind of circular, cylindrical shape to them. So that was, that incarnation of the shop opened in September 1980. And then in, in 1981, Vivian decided to put it on the catwalk. They showed as part of the kind of official shows in London. It's notable that the name Pirate wasn't used. It wasn't called Pirate. It was the World's End Collection. Um, but that's what the label then became. So f- between 1980 and 1983, the clothes that Vivian designed in various degrees of partnership with Malcolm McLaren were all labelled World's End, McLaren and Westwood, born in England. But when I spoke with Vivian about this, she said that he'd become increasingly detached from the fashion that they were producing. And she actually said to me that the last time I gave him credit, he had simply added a hat. And it was in 1983 that their partnership officially dissolved. Their romantic partnership had dissolved much earlier. And then in 1985, Vivian presented her first collection under the Vivian Westwood label. But obviously that early period, I mean, all Westwood periods honestly are kind of incredible. But that early period of the 1980s is really remarkable. The the clothes that she created at that point are really remarkable for their influence on so many different designers on so many different facets of fashion. You know, one of the things that is never really spoken a great deal about is the enormous influence that that Vivian Westwood's early work had on Ray Kawakubo. Those early 80s collections really helped to shape, you know, Ray Kawakubo's approach to fashion. And there was obviously the backwards and forwards because Vivian was looking at methods of cutting that originated in Japan, this idea of cutting things flat as opposed to cutting things round and exploring that. But, you know, those ideas of kind of extreme distress of, you know, tearing holes and and wearing holes in things and using cheap fabrics, you then see that reflected in in Rei Kawakubo's work that she presents in Paris. Yeah. Well, in in so many ways, I would say that Westwood really is the mother of postmodernism in fashion, you know, like... One of the tenets of postmodernism is, is, of course, this rejection of absolutism and, and the embrace of self-referentialism. And, mm-hmm. and we're talking visually, obviously, those references kind of play out in the layering of multiple references on top of each other. And that's exactly what she's doing. You know, she's pulling from fashion history. She's pulling from literature. She's pulling from art. Um, and she's playing with all of these ideas, throwing them all in the sandbox together to inspire something new. The way they collide is, is extraordinary. You know, I, I think it's in the Buffalo collection, which is from 1982, that there are, you know, the hem of a skirt combines scenes from Blade Runner with appellation folk patterns and tufts of wool that are based on the wool that would be caught from a sheep when it rubbed against barbed wire. You mm-hmm. know, combining all of those different elements in a single not even a single garment, a single part of a garment is really extraordinary. And when you look at these collections, they they kind of 
blow you away that there's there's so many references that her mind is going in so many different ways um and there's so much innovation there's and you know and some of it when you look at it is is actually very kind of i don't want to say basic but it's you know she invented the tube skirt she's the first person that showed trainers on a catwalk you know there are all these really kind of extraordinary things that we now just see not even as part of fashion as part but as part of clothing and I also think there's something very interesting with with Vivian. If you look at someone like Coco Chanel or even someone like Donna Karen, because there's this whole idea of, that Vivian is a woman designing for women, and it's about how God, there's really a focus on how garments feel on a body because she's a woman wearing garments. But as opposed to the kind of comfort that Chanel and you know Donna Karen were going for, a lot of the time what Vivian's interested in is is discomfort. You know, whether that discomfort is a corset or, you know, your toes going numb in those platform shoes or the idea of, of clothes that don't stay. She's talked she talked about this in the 1980s, the idea that she's not she wasn't interested in creating clothes that were kind of a rigid shell that stayed in place half an inch away from the body. She liked the idea that clothes were dynamic and that you would have to adjust them constantly. So they were always in rapport with your body. Uh-huh. Um and there are actually interesting interviews, video interviews with Vivian and, and Malcolm McLaren, where you can see uh, the, the kind of animosity between them and the fact that Vivian is fidgeting constantly with her clothes, but it's a way of attracting attention to herself. So it's this idea that, that these constant adjustments, you know, she liked them because it, they drew attention to you, but also it's the idea that it could be flirtatious. It could be, but certainly it always reminded you of what you were wearing. It was never that you were wearing a, a, a dead item. There was always some kind of interaction with the clothes around your body. And, you know, I, I find it really extraordinary that, that, that that's kind of how she thought about clothes. It, they were, it was never really about how they looked. It was always about how they felt, um, you know, how they could change your own perceptions of yourself. Um, you know, and that great quote that, that you know, I parrot all the time. Um, you have a much better life if you wear impressive clothes. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's a wonderful quote and it can be taken in so many different ways. Alex, and likewise, when you have impressive guests on your podcast. So thank you so much for your insights <laughs> into Vivian's early life and career. Trust listeners, we will, of course, be back later this week on Thursday with lots more from Alexander. Picking up in the 1980s when Westwood took a slight detour into the limelight of high fashion, And we will cover many of her specific collections in terms of her many innovations and fashion firsts. And Kaz, I can't remember if I've ever actually mentioned this on the show or not, but I do want to relay a brief heartbreak in my own fashion collecting past. Alex spoke earlier about the obscenity controversy surrounding the Cowboys t-shirt. And when I very first moved to New York City in the 2000s, I came across one being sold on the street by a vintage dealer in Soho. And I knew what it was. I got very excited about it. I asked about the price. Um, I think he told me it was like either like $50 or $75. He also knew what it was as well. He was like, oh, that's why it's priced that way. Uh, We talked about it. 
but I didn't buy it. Oh, no. And this is one of (laughs) my (laughs) deepest regrets in life. You know, I was in grad school at the time, and I was being super cautious about money, just having moved to the city. And I think about it all the time now, and I kick myself. So also this summer, I saw this cute sign outside of a vintage store, and it said, nothing haunts you like the vintage that you didn't buy. And I immediately thought of that T-shirt. Um, so that, that is a true saying. What was I thinking? <laughs> well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you relish the vintage treasures you did buy next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. And if you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. As we appreciate the support of our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible over the last five years. And there's more dress to come this week, so be sure to tune in on Thursday for part two with more on Westwood with Alexander Fury. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.